Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day from Movement. Whether your mom is into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, everything at Movement is up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale. A watch is a gift that celebrates all the time you spent with mom. And a Movement watch is even more than that. Movement uses industry-leading materials for their fresh modern watch designs, from technically complex ceramics to vintage-inspired style, all for an incredible value your wrist and wallet will both love. And with one-size-fits-all convenience and fast-free shipping and returns, it's a stress-free shopping experience. Save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with Movement. Get up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. This is the Read to Lead podcast, episode 186. Hi, I'm Christopher Lockhead, co-author of Play Bigger, How Pirates, Dreamers, and Innovators Create and Dominate Markets, and co-host of the Legends and Losers podcast. If you want to play bigger, be sure and include this show as part of your weekly routine. It's the Read to Lead podcast with my friend, Jeff Brown. When we're in an organization that has dysfunction or politics, nobody wants it, everybody hates it, and almost nobody sees how we're all inadvertently and involuntarily perpetuating the system. Welcome to the Read to Lead podcast with Jeff Brown. Jeff believes that if you desire to achieve true success in business and in life, then consistent and intentional reading is a must. The Read to Lead podcast will not only help you narrow this ever-important reading list, but also bring you key insights and valuable feedback from some of today's most successful and inspiring authors. And now, here's Jeff. Hi, and welcome once again to the podcast that's dedicated to your personal and professional growth. The topic of leadership is, of course, always central to our discussion, and that is indeed the case today, as in a moment, you and I are going to be joined by a guy named Shane Hughes. He's the co-author of a book called Ego-Free Leadership, Ending the Unconscious Habits That Hijack Your Business. I'll be asking Shane to share about his thoughts on our preoccupation with self-worth, the power that empathy and vulnerability can bring to the workplace, how events from our childhood impact behavioral patterns that then impact the course of our life, and plenty more. You know, yesterday I sent out an email to my list marking last night at 11.59 Central Time the deadline to let me know about your desire to submit an application to my new mastermind group launching in November. And it occurred to me as I was putting the finishing touches on this episode that I haven't mentioned it at all on the podcast. So maybe I better do that before I stop taking applications. So here's the deal. Those on my email list have got a bit of a head start on you, but all you need to do is send me an email and let me know you desire to fill out an application to be a part of my new exclusive mastermind group launching next month. Send that email to jeff at readtoleadpodcast.com and just put mastermind in the subject line. 
I'll reply with a link to that application and also a website with all the details. Now, I already have more applicants than I have slots to fill. And so over the coming days, I've got my work cut out for me in determining who is going to be ultimately in our group. But if you desire clarity in your business journey, if you are thrilled with the idea of collaborating with other respected influencers and peers, if you're self-aware enough to know you have room to improve and you welcome having others you trust critique your work, if you long for the confidence to know beyond a doubt that you're headed in the right direction, then you may be the perfect fit for a group like this. So send me an email, jeff at readtoleadpodcast.com with mastermind in the subject line right away. And I'll be sure to get you those details on how you can apply for one of the 10 slots. Shane Hughes is president of Learning as Leadership, a cultural change and leadership development firm serving the private and public sectors. His expertise in creating cultures of open communication and collaboration has uh, helped uh, lead to substantial improvements in organization and personal performance for clients like Fairchild Semiconductor, NASA, uh, Shell Oil, a whole lot of others. His writing has been published in a number of publications, including Forbes and Chief Executive Magazine, and he blogs for the Huffington Post, by the way. His latest book, co-written with Brandon Black, is called Ego Free Leadership, Ending the Unconscious Habits that Hijack Our Business. Shane, it's a pleasure. Welcome officially to the Read to Lead podcast. It's great to be here. Thank you. Well, I have thoroughly enjoyed this book, and it reminds me of some of those sort of business parables that you read from the likes of of Bob Berg, you know, Go-Giver or uh, Ken Blanchard. I I really love how you and Brandon have managed to weave story throughout as as you share these concepts. And and, and the stories do such a fantastic job of illustrating the concepts in, in real world settings. Thank you. Thank you. I, uh, you cut out for a little bit, so I, I'm I'm expressing gratitude for a statement <laughs> that I mostly missed. <laughs> it sounded positive. <laughs> it was it was overwhelmingly positive. You'll have to come back and listen to it later. It was awesome. <laughs> well, hopefully that's that's uh, not the norm here as we move along. But I'll, I'll I'll attempt to jump into the first question. I'd love for you, Shane, to describe uh, some of this ground you cover right at the very beginning of the book, in chapter one, in, including our preoccupation with things like self-worth, things that hijack Mm. our behaviors, you know, the desired and dreaded images duos that you talk about, and how to recognize this this behavior in ourselves when it's it's happening. Yeah, you know, maybe the the way to to describe that uh, most simply is through my own experience. Mm. Uh, So I, I started doing this work when I was an undergrad about 25 years ago. And I had, uh, I was going to UC Berkeley. I was a pretty good student, but I had one, one fatal flaw that really held me back uh, that I really actually felt was more like a personality trait. And that was just a, a real problematic lack of discipline mm. that in particular showed up uh, as a procrastination problem. So I would have papers to write for my major, my field of study. And as the date approached, I would just know each morning as I got up, I got to work on this, I got to work on this. And I would delay it and delay it and delay it until finally the night before it was due, I would, in a mad dash of stress productivity, write the thing and hand it in. And so I always handed things in on time. Nothing was ever late, but it was always, in essence, not my best work. Mm. 
And it was really aggravating because I thought to myself, if I could just start earlier, I could do such a good job. Like, why can't I do this? This is terrible. And I, at some point, we get quite judgmental about my lack of discipline and follow through and had stories about how both my parents were kind of underachievers. So it was genetic. And, mm. and what I realized as I began this work is, in fact, that whole story was basically a cover for fear that was related to my self-worth. And in particular, for me, was related to my intelligence. And, you know, in this sense, I'm I'm a pretty good student at a, at a pretty good university. So we could say objectively that I was had intelligence. Mm. But that's different than what I felt on the inside and what I believed. And I was afraid that I couldn't succeed at this level, that I wasn't smart enough. So my fear of being stupid, and if we can get to this later, also really my fear of being stupid, I think this is often true, is is actually a fear of not being really brilliant and really smart mm. caused me to to delay things and put it off. And so I was being hijacked. I knew the right solution, Jeff, which was start early, get feedback, work on it. <laughs> and then my behavior was something totally different. And it's because fear was creating stress and that stress was causing me to avoid. Um, and so as long as I was at the mercy of that fear, I'm not going to make progress. So that's a procrastination example. But this same uh, framework applies to conflict avoidance and also applies to more reactive behaviors like anger or being abrasive, you know, getting pulled into details, task oriented. A lot of these unhelpful behaviors that we have that we tend to think our personality are usually driven more by pr protecting our sense of self-worth uh, in one way or another. You talked about uh, personality and, and, and I and I've often taken solace, I think, as, as many of us do, is that, well, that's something that that's just part of our personality and can't be changed. Right. But uh, these behaviors have have been learned. And, and as you assert in the book, therefore, they can they can be unlearned. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. So procrastination uh, is is a great example where it, it I don't know that anyone can believe more strongly than I believed that my procrastination was personality driven. Like it was really completely my mental model around that. And I had a lot of judgment and even embarrassment, shame around that. Mm. And once I noticed that in fact, because basically Jeff, the way it works is I was afraid that if I started early and I did my best work and I turned in a paper and then I got a mediocre grade, that meant that I wasn't smart enough. My best work wasn't good enough. Yeah. Whereas I had a built-in excuse always that, well, the reason it wasn't better is because I have this unproductive personality flaw. So I was doing a trade-off. And we begin to see that our ego behaviors give us benefits. So the benefit to me was it was something unwanted. It was poor results. But the benefit was it gave me an out. And this allows us to see how the behaviors that we tend to call personality traits that we don't like are actually behaviors that we're unconsciously committed to because they serve our comfort zone in a certain way. Mm. And so as I began to identify this and make my, my fear basically a failure more explicit and noticing how it was causing me to move away from what was uncomfortable, I then was actually able to go into the heart of what I needed to do. And over time, that changed. And I, I would say probably today that one of my strengths in life is my ability to move forward on things that are uncomfortable, that I'm not sure how I'm going to do. So this this fatal flaw has actually become a strength. And so in that sense, it, it can take a little while. It's not an overnight thing, but it's 
it's completely reversible if you want it. Uh, expound on this this concept of of these phrases you compare and contrast uh, in I think it's chapter three or four of the book at the mercy versus at the source. How how does that play into this? Think of so at the mercy is basically we're trying to, to we're trying to describe our state of being like our experience of the present moment, mm. and at the mercy is when we feel like outside circumstances or people are in some ways dictating our our internal sense of calm mm. and our well-being. So this can be chronic, like I feel stressed about work or finances or uh, how many meetings I'm double booked at, um, or it can be chronic. My boss uh, or the board just criticized me and I'm feeling acutely threatened. So we're, we have negative emotions in that moment. Um, and you can imagine in my scenario with the procrastination, I felt at the mercy when I had this thing do like, I just wish I didn't have this paper to write because right now I'm just feeling at the mercy that I have to do it and mm. at the mercy of my own behavior that I'm not, you know, I'm not um, making more progress on it. And if you contrast that with at the source, I would describe it. So at the mercy, we can spend a lot of time in this space. Mm. Sometimes 90 to 98% of our waking life is feeling at the mercy of demands and kids and responsibility deliverables. And um, whereas at the source, I think is actually more our natural state. So think about our kids before they learn to be adults are often more at peace. They're in the present moment. They're, they're simple. They're connected. They're asking questions. They're, they're just showing up in their, in their natural state of being that I think as adults we often lose. And mm -hmm. so a lot of our work is around how when I want to change a behavior, it's not at the behavior that I have leverage. As long as I'm trying to force myself to do the thing that I'm afraid of doing, but I haven't resolved the fear that I'm feeling, I might be able to will myself for some short period of time to force a new behavior, but it's not going to be sustainable because I'm still at the mercy of all the tension that I carry. And often I just do it in other unproductive ways. Whereas if I can shift the underlying sources of tension and come back to more my natural state of curiosity and exploration and learning and connectedness, then often these personality, uh, quote unquote, behaviors tend to resolve themselves. I, I end up finding simple, more courageous ways to move forward because I'm, I'm not in this more reactive at the mercy state. And am I correct in understanding that when we're in that state, uh, we often pull out of others the very behaviors we're, we're trying and reactions instead of we're trying to avoid in the first place, sort of this, this self-fulfilling prophecy type type idea, right? So you're when I'm in the at the mercy state, you're yeah, saying? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's the thing that in, in some ways is both most troubling, but also perhaps uh, our greatest leverage. Mm. So we feel at the mercy and we fall into these self, uh, self-protective behaviors when we feel threatened. So if I feel like you're criticizing me or you're judging me, I'm going to feel in danger. And so I'm going to go into these automatic coping strategies, which might involve shutting down, withdrawing, criticizing you back, judging you. And if you think about these behaviors, we don't operate in a vacuum. So they affect other people. So if you and I work together and I'm feeling judged by you, and then I start judging you and then talking to my other colleagues about how Jeff is this way and he's that way because it makes me feel better. Mm. What I don't see is that you start feeling the effect of that. You start feeling like, well, Shane's after me and he's critical of me and he's judging me and that makes you feel more in danger. And so what do you do? Uh, you criticize me back and judge me more because now you think I've got an agenda against you. And this is how we get into unconscious spirals with other people. And this happens both in a one-on-one -on -one way. So two people who don't get along, who sort of get off on the wrong foot, if they don't clean it up, it can, it can go downwards. 
And it also really happens in organizations between departments. So uh, if you and I both lead teams that are, let's say, on opposite sides of a matrix, if you and I start getting out of whack with each other, we're liable to also talk to our respective teams about how the other person is this way or that way. And that begins to build up more of an us versus them dynamic. And I think what we what we see here is that when we're in an organization that has dysfunction or politics or turf wars, nobody wants it. Everybody hates it. Everybody feels like it's the other guy who's behaving improperly. And almost nobody sees how we're all inadvertently and involuntarily perpetuating the system. And so we're caught in a web that, that everyone would like out of. It's always the other team's fault. <laughs> always. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And and we kind of laugh about it. And from the outside, we say, oh, yeah, we always think it's the other team's fault. But when I'm in it, it really feels like the other team's fault. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I Tr- got a lot of that back now. <laughs> Trust me, I've been there. <laughs> Both sides of that. Well, Shane, if you would, what, what has your experience taught you? Uh, and I thought there were some great examples of this in the book. What have your ex- experiences taught you about the power of, of empathy and vulnerability in, in these work relationships? Well, I think it's very related to what we're talking about. So when the, the reversal here, Jeff, is that when I feel in danger, when any of us feels in danger, most of our coping strategies and self-protective strategies, as we just discussed, end up generating threat for other people. So we, we, we trade threats back and forth unconsciously. And that just escalates until someone stops the cycle. And empathy and vulnerability are two of the most powerful ways to stop this cycle. So empathy is putting myself in the other person's shoes. So in our hypothetical scenario earlier, when you're when you're judging me, instead of going, oh, Jeff is this way, I think, oh, he's a little, he's a little defensive and aggravated there. What might be going on for him? There's probably some vulnerability he's feeling. And so for me to actually not involuntarily continue my cycle of reaction, but instead to actually see behind how the other person is visibly behaving and trying to understand what might be their feelings of vulnerability or, uh, or insecurity that's, that's behind that. So that I'm, I'm seeing behind the appearances to the underlying cause for the other person. And similarly, when I'm feeling threatened, I can act out my self-protective behaviors, which make me feel momentarily protected, but in fact, cause this long tail of dysfunction. Or I can, through self-awareness, be able to identify, oh, right now I'm feeling like he's, you know, you're judging me as incompetent, or I'm feeling like I'm failing, or I'm feeling judged, and in fact, express that. And the expression of that feels very vulnerable. It in particular feels vulnerable with colleagues or with teams where there's low trust. But in fact, it is the thing that begins to make the environment safe for other people to admit their vulnerability. And so vulnerability really is, um, is a, an act of courage that shifts the context from one of threat to one of safety and trust. And empathy is seeing that vulnerability in other people and then responding in ways that makes it safe for the other person to take that step of courage. And so the two really work in tandem in a very powerful way. Would you say your work uh, with the company outlined in the book, I think, is it M- Encore Capital? Encore Capital, yeah. Uh, I wanted to say Empire Capital for some reason. I knew that wasn't right. Would you say uh, your work with them has been some of your most rewarding? It was a very inspiring story. Mm. Uh, I, I felt very connected to the, to the people uh, on the team. There were definitely moments where it was bumpy and challenging. They're, they're in the debt collection industry. So initially, I, I had some reservations uh, about working with them. Mm. And then in the end, I actually found it 
uh, incredibly inspiring because this was a business that is an industry that it's just very easy to judge as um, uh, ill-intended and predatory. And they were really creating a culture where they were teaching people to actually care about the consumer and to have a, a goal for other people. Because the people that are in the debt collection system, they are, they're trapped in something they don't know how to get out of. And if I'm a collector, I can just be with, well, how do I get more water out of this stone? Or I can be with, how do I help this person get back on their feet? And those two intentions cause me to, to see the consumer and lead from a very different starting point. And I'm not saying that Encore was, was perfect in their work and all of this, but nonetheless, it, it goes to the heart of how in everything that we do, we can have an intention for something broader than ourselves or have an intention that's more around our, our self-worth. And um, up until now, we've been talking about self-worth very much as it's related to me and my behavior, but the goals that we take really matter. And so um, we can have what we call a noble goal or a goal that's larger than myself in, in any situation. So I, I would say in that sense, it was, it was a very inspiring journey. I, I suppose to really respond, like, what's most rewarding to me? Mm. Maybe the thing that I would, I would just add is that I came to this work for very personal reasons uh, because I had a lot of emotional distress um, and, and dissatisfaction in my life because my ego was so disruptive in my, in my behaviors. I, procrastination was, was but one of several things that were really uh, not working for me. And I, and I realized as I started this work that I was creating a lot of pain for myself and for other people uh, through, through these behaviors. Mm-hmm. And I think what's most rewarding for me is not actually when an organization has a big breakthrough or performance enhancements like what is described in the book, but sometimes when people make shifts in their relationship with their, their children or their, their spouse or partner, because that's often what's most precious for people and therefore, what's most painful when there's when there's disconnection? How w- would you say working on your ego uh, is the the highest act of leadership in your view? Uh, why is this one of the most important things we can do in regard to our to our leadership skills and our leadership future? So I I and and all of us at Learning as Leadership we we came up with this this statement together, and um, I think it's really connected to to several things. One, you know, think about bosses you've had or colleagues you've had where you felt that they were really driven by their ego or were self-interested or, you know, just just out for themselves. Like it it really creates a sense of disconnection um, and distrust and, you know, second guessing. And they and by the way, they probably were no no worse, actually, than you or I are. We just happened to. They just happen to do things that are really pushed on our buttons, but I've got my own set of things. And so when any one of us is, is caught up, none of us wakes up in the morning wanting to go to work or into our life being driven by this, but it unconsciously drives the ship most of the time. And so it really has a negative effect on the quality of our relationships, uh, on the level of trust uh, in our, our organizations spread out across uh, an organizational culture can really create toxicity, disconnection, turf wars. And so I tend to think that most organizations and teams operate somewhere well below 50% of their capacity, not because they could do more work or work more hours, but because a lot of their energy actually goes into avoidance, redundancy, uh, judging, workaround, and a lot of people have a tremendous amount of work stress. And when you look at uh, surveys around why people feel 
stress at work is usually not because there's too much work. It's because of painful, stressful relationships that are that feel dangerous to them. And so working on our ego and cleaning up our own stuff and then therefore, A, not bringing that, but bringing something cleaner, more at the source, more centered, and then beginning to create an environment or a context where you help other people do that actually transforms the effectiveness of a workplace. And it also brings, I think, a sense of wholeness and connection to people mm. that is way more precious than a paycheck uh, because people spend a lot of time at work. And so we, we believe, and I believe it's really our highest leverage as leaders. Well, uh, Shane, I have a, a couple of questions uh, I want to ask you, not directly related to the book. But before I jump into that and the time we have remaining, is there anything else from the book you want to make sure that we uh, we know about? So the, most of the book is is the story of the CEO of Encore Capital, Brandon Black. But we have one chapter that is uh, written by um, an executive on his team, Amy Anouk. And she shares her journey as a uh, as a as a woman coming up in this in this company and and she so she felt passed over in many moments and that there were hurdles that she had to jump through as a woman that a man wouldn't have and that there were no women to teach her how to do that mm-hmm. and uh, it was during our time that we were working there that Brandon and she finally began to talk about some of these dynamics because he on his end thought that she was just a rising star who was you know had a had a straight to the top trajectory and there was a real disconnect between his view and her view mm. and uh, and we we delve into this this challenge of being a woman and or a minority in a in a white male dominated workplace and the the difficulty of trying to dissect what's going on there and what happens and also really the challenge of talking about it mm. because for Amy to bring that up it's it's a very delicate dance for Brandon to not hear, well, you're just saying that I'm a sexist or I passed you over. And I think that uh, Amy just did an amazing job of sorting out in her own process what what is perception and judgments versus what really is my path and what's holding her back, what she called her inner glass ceiling. And then also modeling how to how to put these issues on the table in a, in a productive, generative way. Mm. And uh, so that, that chapter was very meaningful for me. So I just wanted to say that if there's, we're not experts in that domain, but I think that this whole work on the, on the ego and self-worth can really hijack the dialogues that we all have together around some of the more taboo or uh, touchy topics in the workplace. I really loved how you approached that chapter in, in, in chapter seven. I think we can't talk about yes. that, I believe is the name of it. Um, uh, one of my favorite chapters from the book. So I'm, I'm glad you I'm glad you brought that up. Um, well, I want you to think, uh, Shane, uh, if you can, about some of the books you've read over the years that have had a real impact on you. Those titles that you come back to again and again as having impacted your career and impacted your life. What would you say those are? Two pretty different books come to mind. Hmm. One is a book that's, that's had a lot of press, I think, especially uh, under Obama, and that was Doris Goodwin's Team of Rivals. Mm. And uh, I was just really inspired by by that book and by her portrayal of Lincoln, because he appeared to me in the book to be someone who had um, some difficulties, frailties, vulnerabilities, um, you know, plenty of moments where he could have easily felt betrayed or backstabbed or hurt by other people or not respected. So when I think about a leader who shows up aiming to to be aware of and not involuntarily reacting to the to the slights that he or she uh, may perceive, mm. he was someone who seemed to be able to to note that, put it aside, and empathize with well what might be going on for the other person. You know, if I'm not just going to prescribe ill intent to them, like where are they coming from? empathize with your enemy type of thing and and also have the larger goal in mind 
and to be able to to not lose sight of his purpose or his compass of what really matters because he's feeling uh, aggressed or betrayed in some way. So I, I found that whole story um, and there was you know all the rivals and different people, but the way Lincoln walked that path, uh, I, I recall underlining a lot of passages. <laughs> so that's that's one book. That Do I, do I have time to talk about a second? Or, oh, sure, sure, absolutely. Second? The more the merrier. Okay, <laughs> the other one, completely different. So uh, Elizabeth Gilbert, who I think is mostly known for Eat, Pray, Love, wrote a book called Big Magic that I think is tied to the TED Talk that she did around genius and where that comes from. I just found that book one of the more mentally and emotionally inspiring books I've read in the last decade. And she has a really interesting writing style. Like it's short chapters that are somewhere between a page and three pages, simple sentences. But I found myself reading like three to five pages and then having to pause because I felt like I was like, I needed to absorb what she was, what she was saying. And I bring it up because also because it's connected, you know, it's, I think it struck a chord in me because so much of our work in my life's path is around learning to identify how my preoccupation with my own competence and value is getting in the way of me being connected to other people, being open to my intuition, mm. uh, being not just intellectually connected to a sense of purpose, but feeling emotionally guided by it. And I thought in very different language, she was really getting at how to get out of our own way and be open to the flow of uh, ideas and inspiration and uh, what we want in a, in a way that was funny, uh, accessible, pragmatic. So I, I dug that book a lot. Mm. Well, I know uh, your book has, has been out for uh, six or seven months now. I'd love to know what, if anything, that uh, uh, you and your team are working on now that uh, you're excited about or able to talk about? The recent development that, that we were excited about is that the audiobook just came out, I think, in the last week or two. Okay. We had a number of clients kept coming back to us saying, you need to do an audiobook. You need to do an audiobook. And so our publisher wanted us to have professional narrators, and we ended up deciding to have Brandon and Amy and I read our sections just because we felt it was connected to our wanting to offer something that was authentic and, and real for people. So if people are into audiobooks, that's actually us talking. And uh, so it's, it's probably not quite as perfect as it would be if it were uh, professional narrators, but it's, it's, uh, it's as real as we could, as we could make it. Uh, other than that, right now, I only have uh, the, the faintest rumblings of another book in the, in the <laughs> cooker. So there's, there's nothing exciting like that going on. But if you are constantly uh, engaged with, with organizations, large and small, nonprofits, entrepreneurs, uh, leaders from large organizations who are interested in doing this this in-depth work for either themselves or their teams or organizations around around the ego. So if in listening to this or reading the book, it strikes a chord around the things that are getting in your way, I see myself not as a as an expert in ivory tower, but really a practitioner, uh, like the people out there working on my stuff every day and really looking to partner with people who want to create a different context around themselves, a different environment in their in their workplace and in their families. And so anyone who uh, would like to connect on that level, uh, we need we need less ego on the planet these days. <laughs> and you mentioned uh, audiobooks. I, I tend to be drawn to to audiobooks that are indeed read by the authors themselves versus books that are read by people like me. <laughs> so so I commend you for uh, uh, pushing back <laughs> on that and, and insisting on reading uh, the book yourselves. I think that's great. <laughs> 
Well, uh, the book again from Shane Hughes and Brandon Black is called Ego Free Leadership Ending the Unconscious Habits that Hijack Your Business. I really appreciate you taking the time, Shane. Thank you so much for writing it and thank you so much for appearing on the show. Well, thank you for having me, Jeff. I really enjoyed it. On our show notes page created especially for this episode, I've included a number of ways to connect with Shane and also the links and resources mentioned and discussed during our conversation. You can find all that at readtoleadpodcast.com slash 186 for episode 186. Remember to act quickly to find out more about submitting an application for my exclusive mastermind group launching next month. Send an email with mastermind in the subject line to jeff at readtoleadpodcast.com. Well, that's going to do it for this week. I look forward to seeing you next time for the next episode of the Read to Lead podcast. Thanks so much for listening to the Read to Lead podcast. As a subscriber, we challenge you to be more than just a passive listener. Become a vital member of the community. Visit us on the web at readtoleadpodcast.com. Until next time, remember, leaders read and readers lead. For the ones who get it done, the most important part is the one you need now. And the best partner is the one who can deliver. That's why millions of maintenance and repair pros trust Granger, Because we have professional-grade supplies for every industry, even hard-to-find products. And we have same-day pickup and next-day delivery on most orders. But most importantly, we have an unwavering commitment to help keep you up and running. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.